Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Tyson Harold, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. In 2015, there was one image on the internet that took everyone by storm. It has been since known as the dress. This particular dress is on the picture behind me here, and if you remember, um, some people see this one way, and other people see it entirely different ways. So let's take a quick poll this morning. How many of you say that is a blue and black dress? Okay, good. How many? And it's not some sort of witchcraft or voodoo up here. It's just that's what happens. And Dr. Huff, who was here in the first service, going to give you a better explanation, but it's something with the rods and the cones in your eyes and how it processes the light as it comes off of the, the outlight or the backlight behind it. Um, but there are pre- clearly people who see it as gold and white, and there are clearly people that see it as black and blue. Now, for those of you who are just utterly confused at this moment, the, the real dress is black and blue, but it's the lighting that changes the way and how some people process that light. Today is going to be a, a similar event where you're going to hear the most well-known Bible story of all time, and that some people see it because of our own preconceived notions, because of the way that we process life, you're going to look at this account and be like, well, I never saw that, or I did see that. And the danger is, is because you've heard this story so many times, that you go, well, it's just a blue and black dress, and that's, that's all there is to it. Well, it, it might be that it is gold and white, too, differently today. David and Goliath is one of the most well-known stories in the entire world. It's referenced in sports and pop culture and music and media, but it's possible to see it from a different perspective. And that's my hope today, is to get you to see the story of David and Goliath through a different lens, through a different perspective. Before we ever get started with the story of David and Goliath, though, there are the skeptics in the room who say, I'm not even buying any of this because I don't believe in giants. And uh, let me give you a couple reasons why I think that there really was a giant and uh, maybe that'll help you out today. Uh, for those of us that have followed God longer than about three days, we should not be surprised by the story of David and Goliath because he never does things the way the weak are strong and the, the wise are humbled. And so if you've been following God for any time at all, this story should not surprise you in any bit. Uh, if you remember all the way back to Numbers 13, When Moses is about ready to go into the promised land, you remember the nation of Israel was coming out of Egypt. They'd been in bondage for years. They are wandering through the desert, and they come up to the promised land. And what's the report back from the spies? There are who in the land? Giants in the land. There are giants in the land. Not one giant, not just Goliath, but a lot of giants. And they descended from a group of people called the Anak, or, and then they actually descended from the group called the Nephilim all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. Now, if you've never read Genesis chapter 6, go read that this week. Have your mind blown. I don't know how to explain any of it to you, but it'll be a good read for you. But they descended from basically human and angels together. And so the Anak were descendants of the Nephilim, and then Goliath and his family seem to be descendants of that. And by the time that we pick up the account of David and Goliath, in the town of 2019, they did an archaeological study, and they found that some of the buildings in Gath were built larger with bigger openings than any of the other uh, buildings of that time in Palestine. And so it's entirely plausible that there really were giants in around about 3,000 years ago at the time of David and Goliath. 
If you don't like that explanation, here's another one. It could be a medical condition known as acromegalia. For my pro wrestling fans in the room, Andre the Giant suffered from this disease as as well as uh, the great Kali. Now listen to the symptoms of acromegalia. They actually, it was an overproduction of HGH, human slow speech and slow movement doing to swelling in their joints. <clears throat> now, think back to the story of David and Goliath that you all know. What did Goliath, he was telling David to come to him. And it would seem that his large size just enabled him. He couldn't move very fast or very far. And so he asked David to come and fight him. When he tells David to come and fight him, David said, I'm going to bring my staff and my five stones. But what did Goliath say at the end of the account? He said, why do you come at me with sticks? Double vision, right? And then it seems like perhaps he had an abnormally large forehead, which made an easier target for David to hit (laughs) hit the uh, the, the stone. So I don't know which one it is. He's like eight foot 10 or 11. So this is entirely plausible that there really were giants. So if you're a skeptic in the room today, hopefully that helped you out. Whatever the reason, David fought Goliath. Now, it's interesting, a little over 10 years from last week, Pastor John talked about the anointing of David as king. And there was a span of a little more than 10 years from his anointing to his coronation. So when he actually became king, there was a a big span of time. In that time, David lived a lot of life. He experienced a lot of things, which is such a great reminder for you and for me that sometimes we look at those mountain peak moments in life and we think, that's where I finally arrived. But no, it was in that span of growth that God was developing and making you into the person that he wanted you to be. That's what we see in the life of David. That's what we see in this particular instance where David and Goliath fight. It turns out that he was fighting, or he was, David and Goliath, uh, as they got ready to fight, David was being prepared all along the way to fight Goliath in the entire chapter. In 1 Kings chapter, or 1 Kings, 1 Samuel chapter 17, Israel's entrenched in a 40-day standoff with the, with the Philistine army. And if you remember, the Philistines have been a thorn in the side of the Israelites for years. If you picture a mountainside on this end and a mountain here and a valley below, the Valley of Allah is where they go to fight. Past that was a massive ravine. Most scholars believe that's where the stalemate occurred. They couldn't decide how they were going to get their massive armies down the valley, through the ravine, and back up the other side, which is also why they think that perhaps they said, well, let's just send Goliath to go fight one person, And if you remember from early on in 1 Samuel chapter 17, they said, if we win, you're going to serve us. If you win, we serve you. And that was kind of what they decided. So they send their nine-foot champion out to meet whoever Israel comes up with. Keep in mind, he has 125 pounds of armor and weapons on him. So this was no small feat just to even walk around as Goliath. He's got 125 pounds of gear. And every day, Goliath would come out and taunt the Israelites and say, who's going to come fight me today? And for 40 days, this happens. But no one ever volunteers. Until one day, David's Goliath's taunt and decides he's going to do something about it. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28. I want to read about uh, 18, 19 verses real quick, just to give you a a picture of it, although you know the story. And uh, we'll see what we see as we go through it. When Eliah, verse 28 David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger and asked him, Why did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Well, now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. 
And the men answered him as before. What David was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out and fight against the Philistine and fight him. You're a young man. He's been a warrior even from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued it, the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. And your servant has killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with the sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Well, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all into our hands. In nearly 20 verses, there's a lot of details that occur. And just as we see the same dress, but we interpret it differently, my hope is today that you'll walk away with a different interpretation of the story of David and Goliath. Because there's a lot more at play here than just a giant being killed. And David, as he comes onto the scene, selfishly asks the question, what will we be done in the verses leading up to, to verse 28? What are we done for the guy who defeats Goliath? They tell him, they say, well, actually, you're going to get a wife, you'll get a lot of wealth, and you don't ever have to pay taxes again. So David says, sure, let's go for it, right? Now, no one else has offered to fight. It's been 40 days and no one has done this. And Eliab, the oldest of his brothers, tells him, he goes, what are you doing here? You should be back home watching the sheep. And in typical younger brother response, in verse 29, David tells him, he goes, uh, now what have I done? I can't even speak. And Eliab was conceited and rash and, and arrogant and proud. But if he was such a great warrior, why didn't he fight for the past 40 days? David, on the other hand, decided something should be done. And he, doesn't, he isn't on the scene more than a few moments when Goliath sends his taunts and David decides to do something about it. If you remember last week in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says that the Lord said to Samuel, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You're going to see there's three people in the story of David and Goliath that see things like people see it, like we see it. But David sees things like God sees it. And that's the great challenge of our life is to instead of see things the way that we've always seen them through our human lens, to see it in the way that God sees it. It is the challenge that faces every single one of us. And so I want you to notice these three things. The first thing I want you to notice is that Eliab saw a nuisance and David saw an opportunity. So his oldest brother Eliab says, why aren't you with those few sheep? There's even the dig at, like, you don't even watch a, a lot of sheep. You just watch a few sheep. Eliab saw a nuisance and David saw an opportunity. But yet nobody offered to fight. 
Nobody offered to fight for 40 days. They're locked in a stalemate. David isn't there even a day and goes, you know what we should do? We should go fight the giant. That's what he says, basically, when he talks to Saul in verse um, 32. Let no one lose a heart on account of this Philistine. Your, your servant will go out and fight him. My guess is, is it was not that their military strategy was off. My guess is they were in fear. Because he says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine that probably the entire nation of Israel had just resigned themselves to try and wait it out on top of this mountain. And David says, let no motivated David to go after this. It was a chance to honor God and to defeat the Philistines. As I mentioned earlier, this was not the first time the Philistines had shown up on the scene. It wasn't the first time they had really messed with Israel. They stole the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, and went on like this whole parade around all their towns just to say like, look, we got God, Right? So this is not the first time the Philistines messed with the nation of Israel. And David said, I've had enough. We're going to do something about it. Eliab saw a nuisance and David saw an opportunity. Go on to verse 33 and you see that David or Saul replies, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he's been a warrior from his youth. The second thing that somebody saw in the account of David and Goliath is Saul, Saul, but it was a short week, and I couldn't come up with anything better than Saul saw in experience. But it's true. Saul's response, as David is the only person to volunteer for the mission, he's like, yeah, I don't know about this. Probably not going to go so well. And Saul saw all the inexperience of David's life. This is what we would see, right? By every stretch of the imagination, David shouldn't be king. He's not talented enough. He's not gifted enough. But what did Samuel say? God looks at the heart. By every stretch of the imagination, David shouldn't be the warrior that's facing Goliath. But what did God know? He was willing to rely on him. And so Saul saw inexperience, but David saw God's faithfulness. And as you look in the middle of some of our darkest moments at times, it can be difficult to trust God because we think he's not there. But David, as he looks back, as Saul is bringing up all of his inexperience, David tells Saul, he goes, wait a minute, it's no different than when I was with the lion and the bear. God will provide. Matter of fact, verse 37 is kind of the hinge point of the entire chapter where David tells him, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. There was such confidence and courage in David's life, not because he was smart enough or good looking enough, although he was probably both. There was such confidence because he had experienced God's faithfulness. That's where his courage came from. That's where his confidence came from. Around here, if you looked back over your life, right? This is the great benefit of getting older. For some of you younger ones in the room, you are by far smarter than I am. It wouldn't take much. But what I have on you and what others who are older than me have is experience. And we can look back over our life and we can go, wait a minute, I never thought I was going to make it through that, but God provided. I never thought that that we were going to be able to get through that, but God provided. And so as David looks back on his life, He sees God's faithfulness and says, there's no reason to not to trust him today, which is the same thing for you and for me. And I don't know what you're facing today, but it's the same thing. That you can choose to trust God today and tomorrow for that matter, because he's been faithful not only in your life, but look back over the decades, over the millennia of how many times God has been faithful. And might might make it through, might not, but God's going to be there. Which brings us to the other lesson that we learn is that God doesn't waste anything. Can you imagine David? So as a young shepherd boy, 
he's got to be lonely sitting out in the field. We know that he wrote some of his deepest, darkest thoughts and lament psalms at times when everybody seemed to abandon him. He had to be lonely. He had to have pain and joy and times of sorrow. He had to think, I only get a few sheep, but everybody else has got a lot of sheep. Can you imagine? I don't like being out in the woods by myself at night because it's like kind of gets a little spooky after a while. Like he's out there by himself fighting off a lion and a bear. Like this guy is, is a man. And he's sitting there and going, yeah, God was faithful. But the thing that we learn from David in this going to be used for anything good, God was there. And God was doing something in your life. The moments that you feel like you're insignificant now and you don't matter, whether because you're, you're incredibly old or incredibly unable, God's still there. And he's willing to use you if you're willing to be used by him. As believers, not only do we have the benefit of looking back over God's faithfulness, though, we also have the benefit of literally God with us, right? The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, literally dwells inside of us. So we can look back over our life and see that it says this, God prays within us, for the pain around us. And to think about that, that God is settling your soul in the midst of chaos all around. He's praying for you. So whether you don't want to pray, can't pray, forgot to pray, didn't pray enough, if you're a Christian, God's always praying for you on your behalf, which is such a comfort to me, and I hope it's a comfort to you today. So God's faithful in the past leads us to trust him today. He goes on in verse 38, where Saul dresses David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet. Keep in mind that he perfected the craft of slinging stones when he had nothing else to do. It's not like he was watching Benjamin Netflix, so he's like, let's check the sheep. No, he just had nothing else to do, so it's like, let's try and hit a rock on that rock, and let's try and hit a rock over there. Most people who are highly trained with a slingshot can hit a fly on the side of a rock. And so for David, he had practiced, and God had been preparing him. And he says, I can't, can't wear your armor. This doesn't work out. Just give me what I need. And my, what I need is my staff and then my stones. In 1948, there were four American pilots, Jewish American pilots, that came back from the war. And this has been called the modern-day David and Goliath. These four particular Jewish American pilots helped smuggle planes into Czechoslovakia and then back into Israel to start what is now known as the Israeli Air Force. And those four pilots, they were outgunned, outmanned, everything. If you know anything about the 1948 Israeli-Arab War, five Arab nations come and descend on Israel as soon as they become a nation, and they're ready to obliterate them off the map. These four American pilots go, this is all we got. What are we going to do? So what do they do? They come up with this plan. They plan to fly in the clouds so that no one knows how many airplanes there are. And then they set up ground station radios everywhere so that it sounds like there's pilots everywhere, but in reality, there's only four pilots. So as the Arab nations looked up, they just saw a plane and there's clouds, and they can't tell how many there are. They just hear a couple of them, and that's what these guys did. As they recounted these guys, and, and most of them died within the past five years or so ago, but in one documentary I was watching on this, the pilot said this. He said he was shot down in Paris, and he was reminded, he goes, I think God saved me in Paris so that he could use me in Israel. He was only able to say that after he looked back on his life after all those years, right? He was certainly, when he went down in Paris, he was not thinking like, wow, God saved me so I could go save somebody else someone, someday. No, he was able to look back. And David was able to look back. And not only was he able to look back, but in the same way, those guys used four planes, relatively short war, but they used what they had. David, as he's forced on Saul's armor goes, I can't do this. I got to use what I have and what I know. 
And that's what David did. He used those five stones and he used that staff and he went after Goliath. The third person that sees things the wrong way or sees things the way that always we do as humans is Goliath. And Goliath saw weakness, but David saw God's power. Goliath saw weakness, but David saw God's power. If you want to know why David is referred to as a man after God's own heart, I think this is part of the reason. When everybody else saw things the way that we normally see them, David saw them from God's point of view. And there's probably a whole host of other reasons why David was listed as a man after God's own heart, but these, I think, are three of them. Goliath sees weakness. If you go on to verse 41, uh, Goliath comes down with a shield bearer. He looks David over and he says, this guy's nothing more than a young, handsome kid. And he says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Now, in our culture, we love our dogs and uh, we hold them in a special place. In their culture, this was not a compliment. This was about the worst thing you could be called. And Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And I think this is real-time evidence of what God is about to do in this situation, of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and, uh, or 27 and 28, uh, Paul says this. Let me flip over there. There it is. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And he's ultimately talking about the inexperience, the, the lowly. And he humbled not only Goliath, but an entire army because of it. So in verse 46, David repeats Goliath's threats back to him. Remember the whole time, if you go all the way back to the first part of the chapter, Goliath's threat was he was going to tear your carcass and feed it to the birds and the wild animals. David repeats it back to him, but he repeats this, or he adds this important point in verse 46. This day, the Lord will deliver you into, your, into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And this is what he adds. And the whole world will know there's a God in Israel. David threw Goliath's words back at him and wanted to make really, really clear that he understood one thing. He didn't pick a fight with Israel that day. He picked a fight with God. And that Goliath stood absolutely no chance. And as if a way to give Goliath one more chance to back out, and for all of us who would typically be watching this, we'd be like, this is over, it's done, right? But God had other plans. And then the Philistines pretty much become irrelevant. They pretty much go on to obscurity. So much so that in 1 Samuel chapter 28, so about several cha- about 10 chapters down the road, David goes and hides with the Philistines when Saul comes after him. They're so afraid of David, they're like, just don't do what you did to Goliath. You can hide here. Like, it's cool. Right? They're utterly irrelevant. And so as you look back on the story of David and Saul, Saul inexperienced. And David recalled God's faithfulness. And then Goliath sees what we all would see, which is weakness. And David saw God's power. Matter of fact, that's what he says in verse 47. All those gathered here today will know that it's not the sword or the spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord, and he will give you all into our hands. At first glance, you may read through the story of David and Goliath and be like, that's some like extreme confidence, borderline arrogance. But I don't think that's the way it is. I think that's our Western mind reading that that way and interpreting it. I think he had such confidence and courage because he understood God's faithfulness, and he understood that God was with him. 
I want you to think back to all the times that God was faithful in David's life. As a young shepherd boy, he was sitting there with a, helping him hone his skill as a, able to sling a rock and fight off bears and lions, and God was faithful. And he was faithful when Saul later came to try and basically kill him because he realized that David was the one who was going to come, and God was faithful. And so he provided ways for, he hid in caves, and he ran around, he hid with the Philistines, and, and God was faithful. He was faithful when David had massive armies because he fought all the time. And the reason he fought all the time is because they didn't do what God asked him to do when they first came in the promised land. He said, get rid of these armies. And so David spent his whole life fighting, but God was faithful. And he was faithful when David, even when David and Bathsheba, he was faithful. And he was faithful when David's kids kind of went crazy and he was faithful. And he was faithful all the way to the end of David's life. And I guess I look back on that, and I look back on what little life I've lived, and I look back on the lives of the people I've seen, and I just come to the conclusion that God's faithful. And that I would have loved to have done a sermon called Six Ways to Kill Your Giant. But sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. And I think I'd be doing you a great disservice for you to look at the story, because it's not about David, and it's not about Goliath about God. And if I were to give you a sermon of six ways to kill your giant, at least one of those times, the giant's going to kill you. Read the story of David and Goliath and not see that he's not faithful. And the second thing that we see is that everything wrong, he's making right. Everything wrong, he's making right. If Joshua and his men had driven out the people in the land, there would be no Goliath to fight. So Goliath is actually proof that God is going to deal with all things in his time. Now, you and I stand on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection. And when we look at the story in David and Goliath, typically our American, one would come one day who would reign on his throne forever. One of your sons would come and reign one day forever. So when we look at the story of David and Goliath, it's really a story pointing to Jesus. If they would have just followed him in the garden, Adam and Eve, we wouldn't have had any of this. If they would have just kicked out the people who God told them to do, we wouldn't have had Goliath. If you and I would just do what God's asked us to do, we wouldn't have to go through some of the pain and sorrow and deep regret. But the good news is, is that Jesus conquered the greatest enemy we have, which is death and sin. And he conquered those so that one day everything indeed would be made right. Some of it will happen now, and some of it's going to happen in the future. And so the second lesson we take away from, it's not about David, It's not about Goliath, but it's about God. Reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. I just want to leave you with this verse today. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Right? Some of it's going to be fixed now. Some of it's going to be fixed later. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but it was unseen. Since what is temporary is is unseen, but what is unseen is eternal. And so when you, and that everything wrong, he's making right. And I think because of that and a whole lot more, you can trust him. You can trust him if you're in the middle of a really dark time. You can trust him if you're in the middle of a really light and easy time. You can trust him with everything, including your life. And if you don't have a relationship with God, I would encourage you to trust him with that.
to turn in repentance and faith and to call out, ask him to save you from your sin and from death and to follow him. And if you've never done that before, you've got to do that today. But for most of us in this room, I'm trusting that we've done that. So what's it look like for us? The business of making right, which therefore you can trust him all the more. Let's pray. God, help us to trust you today when things don't seem to go our way. Help us to trust you when things don't seem clear. And God, I thank you for the story of David and Goliath that, God, I believe actually happened. It certainly was a a, a military defeat, but it was also a defeat against evil. And God, from this account, we can see that you're faithful. In your time, in your way, you're going to accomplish your purposes. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us patience. For those who are in the middle of enduring a challenge, I pray that you'd give them patient endurance. For us that are, things are going well, God, I pray that we would be thankful and, and give praise to you for that. And if we find ourselves somewhere in between today, God, I pray that you would just remind us over and over again that you love us and we worship him because of it. Because he took care of the biggest problem we have, which is our sin and death, and he defeated that. So God, on this side of the resurrection, we have hope, not because everything's gonna turn out right and we can kill all the giants in our lives, but we have hope because one day you're going to make all things new. And so God, in the meantime, help us to be faithful. God, I pray for whatever, through your spirit, it's 100% worth it to trust you. God, thank you for loving us and thank you for not leaving us on our own. In Jesus' name. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.